Well, today is Palm Sunday, and this is the start to what's been called Passion Week. Uh, This week makes us reflect on the events just before the crucifixion of Jesus, culminating, of course, with the resurrection, which we will celebrate together next Sunday. And and this particular day, Palm Sunday, makes us reflect on Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, what's sometimes called the triumphal entry. Jesus comes into Jerusalem on a donkey, and then the crowds gather, and there's lots of people there, and they're putting down their, their garments, and, their, and, and they took these palm branches, some replicas of which we see here, and that the children waved a little bit before. They, they put them all down on the road as Jesus comes on the road right after that. And, and it's almost like a, like a common day red carpet that they made together. He's treated like royalty. And in that event, we see both his humility, the fact that he came in on a colt, and his authority, and that all these people are bowing in submission to him. The crowds were acknowledging him as their king, as, as the one who they thought was their conquering Messiah. But looking back on that, we now know that all of that was just a, just a real temporary reverence, a brief moment of, of homage and adoration. It wouldn't keep going like that. In fact, by the end of that very day, Jesus would find himself alone, standing in the temple. He'd eventually go and join his disciples in the town just outside Jerusalem in Bethany, but but even his disciples would leave him in a couple of days too. All of that would foreshadow the fact that by Friday, he was alone on a cross. And while he was alone, he was actually carrying on his body all the sins of of all those who would put their faith in him, including us. And so he was a solitary figure. He had a couple of people on the cross beside him, but he was a solitary figure on that cross. And yet all at that same time, he was carrying the sins of all those who would repent and believe including us, including those of us that make up the church here in Wetaskiwin and almost 2,000 years later. And so today and next Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, I want us to think together about the meaning of the cross and the meaning of the resurrection and about how the whole Bible is actually pointing to, either, either forwards or backwards, to the events of this week. And by the way, if you are uh, interested, if you're maybe a little bit of a historical uh, buff, I want to commend this new book to you. It just came out uh, called The Final Days of Jesus by Andre, uh, Andreas Kostenberg and Justin Taylor and subtitled The Most Important Week of the Most Important Person Who Ever Lived. Uh, the authors of that book sort of put together a little bit of a, of a timeline and a chronology of all the events of that week. And, and they even put together a good actual date, possible date, of when Jesus actually died. It's uh, kind of partway through it now in a very interesting book. And by the way, the date that they came up with was April 3rd, A.D. 33, that Jesus died. But if you're into that sort of thing, I just want to commend that that book to you, The Final Days of the Life of Jesus. Well, as you know, um, at this church, 
One of the things that we try to do at the beginning of every year is try to encourage all of you to be in your Bible, reading your Bible and studying your Bible. And while we do that in church and in Bible studies, we also want to do that or want people to do that individually and in their homes. And so to help with that, we we provide you with daily reading plans that encourage you to try to read through the whole Bible. Now, you don't have to use our plan. There's lots of plans out there. You can get plans um, sent to your phone every day or a Bible reading sent to your phone every day. There's lots of stuff out there. But we just want you to be uh, in the Word and in the habit of hearing from God directly every day through His Word. We believe this, that God has given to us, represents God's voice. And we want you to be in the practice of hearing it, God's word to his people. Well, I've been doing that, or trying to do that for for a number of years now, sometimes uh, successfully, sometimes not so successfully. Um, But when I have done it, sometimes during the year I get behind and and things come up and and I, I actually neglect to do what I encourage you to do. Not a good example, I know. So sometimes I find myself having to catch up and having to read large portions at a time to get there, which requires sometimes bigger chunks of time. But one of those catch-up times came up for me a couple of weeks ago when I was on a plane. I had a four-hour flight, and I knew I would have lots of time to be able to catch up. And in the Old Testament at that point, I happened to be in the book of Numbers. And I think I needed to read about 15 chapters or so to, to, to be able to catch up. Um, and so Numbers, of course, if you know the Old, the Old Testament, Leviticus Numbers, not the most riveting book in which to stay engaged and to keep someone's attention on a four-hour flight. But I, but I managed to do it. But one of the advantages of reading big sections of the Bible at a time is that themes start to pop out. And you start to notice repeated words and, and reoccurring concepts. And when I started reading through the book of Numbers, through the different laws and such, a couple of words sort of started jumping off the page to me. I started to see these words. She shall bear her iniquity, or he shall bear his iniquity. And all through numbers at various points, these words kept on coming up and getting repeated in different places. And so I started marking those with a pencil, and I started marking them because it occurred to me that in the Old Testament, if people were found to be guilty of a sin, they sometimes had to bear their own guilt. They had to take the consequences for their sin, for their guilt, for their breaking of God's law. And all of that got me to thinking about the notion of how we all, uh, all of us as sinful human beings, will bear our sins, how we will receive the consequences of our iniquities, of our offenses against God's law, which happen lots, every day, in fact, many times. And then... From that, it got me thinking about the cross and about how thankful and amazed I need to be that God would purpose to send someone to bear my sins in my place. And that all got me to thinking about this week, this Passion Week, this week where Jesus willingly went into Jerusalem, knowing full well that he would be mocked and that he would suffer and that he would die as a sin-bearing Savior, even though he never once sinned himself. And so I want us, at the start of this Holy Week, to think about how this was all God's plan, from one end of the Bible 
to the other. And so this is going to be a little bit of a different uh, sermon than we're used to. Instead of walking through one passage, I want us to take a trip through the Bible and to follow this theme just a little bit. I can't go to all the passages, and there are many, but just follow this theme of bearing sin by looking at some of the, the key texts. This is a, a profoundly important truth. You need to know this. If you really want to understand the cross, if you really want to reflect and, uh, upon and to remember what this season that we call Easter means for you, you need to understand this concept. It's actually one of those things that means everything for you and for me and for every single human. It's a matter of eternal life and eternal death. Because the reality is, like I said before, we're all sinners. We have all sinned, Romans 3.23. And because we have all sinned, someone will need to bear the consequences of those sins. It should rightfully be us. There would normally not be any way out. But God, in his love and in his uh, merciful concern and in his kind benevolence, provides an alternative. But the reality, again, is that someone has to absorb the penalty for our sins. That's just part of God's justice. And so we're going to kind of follow this theme. And while we're doing that, we're going to think this week and next week about what it was that Jesus actually bore on the cross on our behalf. What were the consequences that should have been placed on us that Jesus bore, that Jesus carried instead of us? And to understand that, we have to start in the Old Testament. So let's go back to the law of God, and especially to the book of Numbers, to those passages that caught my attention. And I want us to see why it is that we need a deliverer, why it is that we need a rescuer, why it is that we need a savior. The whole idea of the Old Testament sacrificial system and of those offerings that you read about over and over again through Leviticus and and, and, and partly through numbers as well, was to, was to somehow to be able to atone for sins. The sins of a person could be transferred to an animal, and then they would bear the sins of the sinner. But there were times when someone would have to bear the sins on their own. And so you have sayings like this, for example, in Numbers 5, Verse 31, and here's a case where a, where a woman has been found guilty of adultery, and Moses sort of prescribes an investigation, a, a test of sorts that will determine whether she's guilty or not of the, uh, of the accusation. And so if she is found guilty, right at the end of the chapter there, after all uh, of these tests are given, it says there in Numbers 531, The man shall be free from iniquity, but the woman shall bear her iniquity, her guilt. And so here's an instance where even though if we were to take the time to look closely at the passage, we would see some great pointers ahead to repentance and forgiveness. Here the woman would have to bear her guilt, which was the death penalty. And Numbers comes back to that concept over and over again, even for what might seem to be seemingly less serious things. And so if you head over to chapter 9. In chapter 9, there's another law which is given there, which says if you didn't celebrate the Passover, 
at the proper time. Doesn't seem too serious, but if you didn't celebrate the Passover at the certain uh, at the proper time, there was some ramifications to that. And you get down to chapter nine, verse thirteen, and it says, "But if anyone who is clean and is not on a journey fails to keep the Passover, that person shall be cut off from his people." Because he did not bring the Lord's offering at its appointed time. And what's the consequence? That man shall bear his sin. The man will bear his guilt. In chapter 14, we see it not on an individual level, but now on a community level. Numbers is the story of the people of Israel on the way to the promised land. That's when Moses is talking uh, to them here. They're in that, on that journey from, from Egypt to Israel, to what would become the promised land, to Canaan. And in chapter 13, if you just go back one chapter, they were right there. They were just sort of ready to go in. They are at Kadesh Barnea, just on the cusp of the land. But it's the story there in Numbers 13 of the two spies, and the, the two good spies and the ten bad spies. You remember these from Sunday school. You know, ten were bad and two were good. Remember the ten saw only giants and, and, and opposition in the land, while the other two gave a good report and said, you know, let's, let's go in there. We can do this. Let's, with God on our side, of course, let's go in there. We can go in there and take them out. But what did the congregation listen to? This mass of people. They listened to the ten. And they only ended up seeing the obstacles. And what happened then is they started grumbling and started complaining, saying, to Moses, why are you sending in, us into this land where we're going to uh, die at the hand of giants? And if you can believe it, they actually say they'd rather be back in slavery at Egypt than to die that way. Well, God ends up getting right angry at them for not trusting him for a great deliverance. Even though he promised that ex- uh, even he, even he promised that exactly what he'd do, and even though they had already seen him do a, a whole whack of miracles before that, just to get them away from Egypt. And so God actually tells Moses that he's going to strike them with disease, and then he's going to leave them out there, and he's going to build the nation through Moses. But Moses prays for God to relent, and God does. But he still decides to punish that generation for not letting them see the promised land, with the exception of the two good spies who were Joshua and Caleb. The rest of them were now consigned to die in the wilderness. And he words it like this, all that to get to Numbers 14, verse 34. It says, according to the number of days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, a year for each day, here it is again, you shall bear your iniquity 40 years. And you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this I will do to all this wicked generation who are gathered together against me in the wilderness. They shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. And that's exactly what happened. And so, so again, now with a whole congregation, and there would have been over a million of them, it says they will bear their own iniquity. And the result eventually is death. God punishes them. There is no one to bear their sins other than themselves. And the rest of Numbers talks about how the people uh, could avert having to bear their own iniquity. 
But it's important to note in that book and in the law in general that someone would always have to bear the consequences of sin. That much was plain. It was either the sinners themselves or something or someone else as a representative sin bearer. Sometimes an animal, uh, sometimes even the priests. In fact, in Leviticus 10, Aaron's sons were rebuked by Moses, who was their uncle, for not eating the offering. He says there, Aaron gave it to you, this is chapter Leviticus 10, verse 17, Aaron gave it to you so that you may bear the iniquity, there it is again, those words, of the congregation to make atonement for them. And so you start to see this idea of an atonement. Thank God that there is an opportunity for us not to have to bear our own sin. God was purposing and and showing hints, even here in Leviticus and Numbers, that he was providing a way for sinners not to have to bear the consequences of their own sins. And we can actually go even farther back, even right to the beginning of the Bible, to see where this idea of bearing sin actually starts. We see the problem and the need and and, and the groaning for this way back in Genesis 4. You remember the story, Adam and Eve have two sons, Cain and Abel, and they both present offerings of sorts to God. And and God accepts Abel's offering, but he does not accept Cain's offering. And that, understandably, I guess in a sense, infuriates Cain. He gets mad at God, and he gets jealous of his brother, and he actually proceeds now to murder his own brother. And God then gives Cain the consequences, saying, Now you are cursed from the ground. It shall no longer yield you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on this earth. And so Cain basically gets separated from both the ground, which would be especially severe for him because he was a farmer, and he gets separated from God. And then we read this in Genesis 4, verse 13. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Cain had to bear the punishment for killing his brother and would last for the rest of his life or he would be away from the presence of God. Cain, in some way, is the representative sinner. Sin alienates sinners from blessing and from God himself. And Cain's cry is the cry that cries out from all sinners. My punishment is greater than I can bear. We need someone, something, ends up being someone to bear the punishment for us if we are to have any hope of life and of blessing. But, If there's one thing that God gives in bountiful supply, thank God, it is hope. And we see seeds of hope right from the outset of sin, right from the outset of our separation from God, even back in Genesis 3. He makes this promise that the seed of the woman is going to crush Satan. But another case in point is Genesis 22. You'll remember that story as well. There's a lot of Sunday school stories we're going through here. But it's a story of Abraham and Isaac. And God basically there tells Abraham to go up on a hill and to, and to sacrifice his son Isaac. It actually ends up being a test of Abraham's faith in God. And so Abraham goes up. He obeys God and he goes up with Isaac onto Mount Moriah. 
And he even goes so far as to lay his son on the altar. But just as he's about, he even takes the knife out, just as he's about to put the knife in him, an angel stops him. And God provides a ram for the sacrifice. They're caught in the thicket. You look at that and go, what is that all about? What is God doing? Well, Abraham knew exactly. And he names the place, the Lord will provide. It's an act of faith and and an act of trust in God to lay his son up on that altar. But this is a, a huge clue that not only would God provide for Abraham, but he would provide a sacrifice for sin on behalf of his people. Maybe, just maybe, God would provide someone that would bear our iniquities. And maybe they wouldn't have to bear their own iniquities. Maybe, just maybe, there would be a substitute sacrifice. Maybe, just maybe, God would provide someone who would die in the place of sinners. Someone who would atone for the sins of the people so that they would not have to bear the iniquity of their sins. And in this, we start to see a little bit of who God is. But in understanding who God is, we start to see a little bit of what almost seems like two conflicting things about God. We've got God's love, and we have God's judgment against sin. You know, sometimes in our day, especially in contemporary uh, evangelicalism, and sometimes in order to make God desirable or more desirable, we want to make people think that God is, is only a God of love. We want to create an image of a loving God. Why? To make him more palatable, uh, really, to people that we love, but that don't know God. And mostly, these are loved ones that we, that we sort of present God in this way. And it's sort of an honest quest. We want our loved ones to come into a relationship with God so much, we want them to be able to have eternal life. But just think about that quest or that motive. Why do we go to such great lengths to try to make God a God that, you know, that, we, that loves you and accepts you? And that we tell people to come just as you are. Why do we do that? Why do we feel like we have to rescue God from himself? The answer is that we know that he's also a God of justice. We know deep down that he's a God of justice and that he has to punish sins. And so we present this sort of skewed image of God just to make people accept him and to to come into a relationship with him. We don't want people to experience the just wrath of God. And so we wrongly, although maybe from the right motives, present people with only one side of God's character. And I just say that this is a wrong presentation of God because it might attract people to God initially, but it also might not have staying power. We might help people to come to God, but... But, but like the people that Jesus describes in the parable of the sower where they uh, immediately receive the word of joy, with joy, but when tribulation or persecution arises, immediately they fall away. You can read that parable in Matthew 13 and other places in the Gospels. 
But I say all that just to say that it presents the paradox of God. And you can see this paradox when God describes himself in in Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. God describes himself there as being just this wonderful description of himself there to Moses as, as being merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But did you notice what it also says? Who will by no means clear the guilty? Etc. He's done all these wonderful things. He, he is all these wonderful things, loving and gracious and forgiving, but he also does not leave the guilty unpunished. And so the dilemma is, the paradox is, how could God be both loving and just? How could God forgive sin yet not clear sinners? But that's where the hope comes. And it comes through sacrifice and atonement. That's where those two characters of God meet. They're not separate characteristics. He's not schizophrenic. He's both at the same time. And specifically on the Day of Atonement, where one time every year the high priest would put his hands on the goat. You know, there would be one goat that would be sacrificed and then one that would be sent off outside the camp, to symbolize the fact that sin could be taken away. In this ceremony, the priest is saying, we all deserve to die, no exceptions. But even though the Old Testament system could not finally save, it pointed ahead to the fact that that maybe somehow, somehow someone could bear our sins for us. So now zip way ahead to Isaiah 53 to the passage I read before. Now we move on to prophecy, uh, this telling forth what's coming up. And here in this amazing prophecy of the suffering servant, we find these same kinds of concepts. The concept of bearing sin. But now, instead of talking about a system of sacrifice, the prophet Isaiah starts talking about an individual. Instead of talking about animals, Isaiah starts talking about a person. This person is nameless at this point, but as God's purposes are revealed, and now looking back on this, at this prophecy on this side of Easter, we know exactly who this is talking about. I won't read the whole passage again, but just look at a few verses. First verses 4 to 6. Surely he has borne, there's that same word for, for bear, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The implication is that that he had no transgressions or iniquities that he was being pierced and crushed for. He was being pierced and crushed for ours. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. 
and with his wounds we are healed. And we like sheep have gone astray and have turned every one to his own way. And here it is, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He has borne our griefs. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then verses 11 and 12. There's a shift that actually happens from verse 10 because now the Lord is talking directly. And he says there in verse 11 of Isaiah 53, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, it's God talking, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And here it is again, he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the sinners, for the transgressors. Here, in this passage, my dear brothers and sisters, is the utter outrageousness, yet the overwhelming wonder of both God's justice and God's love. God would send, one, send someone to bear our iniquities. When we read this, it should make us explode in, in gratefulness and in wonder and in worship. Just like the song that we just sang, it sort of asks the question, you know, in wonderment, died he for me? Who caused his pain? Amazing love. How can it be that, that he should die for me? Isaiah's word from God is that someone is coming to bear the guilt of the guilty. Does that not make you just want to worship him? passage like this informs our worship. And by the way, this picture in Isaiah is not the image that the people in Jerusalem that were laying down their garments and palm branches were expecting when they were singing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were praising uh, what they thought would be a, a military, a, a conquering, triumphing king, not a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He would indeed be high and lifted up and exalted, and he would indeed be a conquering king but he would be lifted up onto a cross to conquer sin by bearing the iniquities and the punishment of all his people. He was a conquering king, but he was also a suffering servant. This one that Isaiah writes about is identified in the New Testament. We don't know who he is, until then, although we now know who Isaiah 53 is talking about. We, we read about the events of his suffering and the crucifixion uh, in the Gospels. We can, you can read the historical events of what happened there. But the epistles, the letters, talk about the significance of his death. And so I just want to look at two very quickly. Look, just look at one line in the, in the letter to Hebrews. Go way into the back of the Bible to the letter of Hebrews. Chapter 9, verse 28. Hebrews is a wonderful book for uh, you that are in the Hebrews Bible study or are learning this, but it makes the, the wonderful connections from the Old Testament sacrificial 
system to this suffering servant. But in Hebrews 9.28, it identifies the one that would be our sin bearer. Kind of comes up here in mid-sentence, but so Christ, there's the identity of this sin bearer, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of the many. Let's stop right there. We'll talk about the rest of that verse uh, next week. But this is the one that would bear the sins of the many. It's Christ. Christ having been offered once for the, to bear the sins of the many. This line is at the end of a section explaining how the Old Testament sacrifices are fulfilled by Jesus. He is superior to all of them. But I just wanted to make this connection from that idea of, of bearing sins in Leviticus and Numbers and Isaiah to Jesus Christ. Here our sin-bearing Savior is identified. The one that Isaiah 53 was talking about was pointing ahead to. The one on whom all our iniquities are laid is Christ. Jesus Christ was offered once. Not over and over again. Not yearly or annually. He was offered once to bear the sins of many. And Peter makes it more personal in 1 Peter chapter 2. So just ahead, two books, 1 Peter chapter 2. This is the last passage that we'll look at this morning, although there are many more that we could look at. But this sort of completes the picture, and it actually talks now directly to you and to me. 1 Peter 2.24. He's writing there about Christ and says, He himself bore our sins in his body on a tree. Why? What is the meaning of this? That we may die to sin and live to righteousness. And now, getting real personal, by his wounds, you have been healed. Christian, by his wounds, you have been healed. This promise, this reality is yours by faith. If you are here today and you're not a Christian, all of this is a sobering, fearful reality. But it's not just that. It's also a, a hopeful reality. We have all sinned and the wages of sin is death, as we've talked about before. In, in other words, all sin is against, it's an offense against the holy, perfect God. And God in His justice must punish sins. Wages of sin is death. Romans 6, 23. But do you see what God has done here? In His love and in His kindness and in His mercy, He has sent to this earth a sin bearer. He has sent a man with, with, with flesh and blood just like you. He has sent His own Son and He sent Him to this earth to bear the penalty for your sins. And Jesus came, and, and Jesus lived the perfect life, and even though he never sinned, he bore your sins on a tree, on the cross. So the upshot of it all is that someone must bear your sins. And if you decide to reject Christ as your sin bearer, listen to this, then you are the one that will bear your sins. But if you trust, which means you rely upon, you depend upon Jesus Christ's sin-bearing work alone, 
then he will bear your sins instead of you. He died as your substitute, sin-bearing Savior. And the wages of sin will no longer be eternal death and hell, but the gift of God to you is eternal life. So the Bible says that the way to receive that gift is through repentance and faith. Or, in other words, turning from your sin in in anguish and in sorrow, and at the same time, turning to Christ, looking to Him alone as the one who suffered and died instead of you. He died your death so that you wouldn't have to. And next week, we'll learn about how He rose to life so that you could also live eternally. Just listen to the words of this hymn as we close. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah! What a Savior. Let's bow together in prayer.